We'll be talking about the impact of gun violence in this podcast. If this is a difficult topic for you, please take care when listening. Predatory behavior is that you are looking for somebody to hurt, to kill. And what's particularly important was just the ability to still be somewhat cool, calm, and collected while being in the cafeteria and terrorizing people, even to the point of picking up a cup off of one of the tables and taking a sip. There was a cruel calmness about Harris and Klebold, in spite of all of you who were hiding under tables and pushing chairs over and running for your life. That ability to be strategic and thoughtful under the worst of circumstances, and you're causing it. You're causing those worst of circumstances. My name is Amy Over, and this is Confronting Columbine. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash wondery, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash wondery to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash wondery. Confronting Columbine continues. I'm Nancy Glass here with Amy Over. Amy, I am so fascinated by this. An FBI profiler was brought in to study the killers and she was also asked to review videos they made. She wanted to keep them private. The media wanted the videos released publicly and they sued. Yes, they did. And today we're talking to Mary Ellen O'Toole. She's brilliant and a straight shooter. She has tons of insight on mass shootings, and she is the reason why they kept the basement tapes private. I understand the conflict. You don't want to sensationalize it. It's scary, but we need to hear it. And you also talk to someone else. I talked to Dave Cullen, the author of the book Columbine. He spent 10 years of his life researching the mass shootings at Columbine. I spent 28 years in the FBI, and almost half of that time, I got involved in the FBI's behavioral program as a profiler, and I worked in that capacity until I retired in 2009. Before you can become an FBI profiler, one of the requirements is that you work in the field as an FBI agent for years, investigating things like bank robberies, violent crime, extortions, bombings, white collar crime. So you have to have a lot of years as an FBI agent under your belt before they'll even consider you for the profiling unit. And it's now known as the BAU from like Criminal Minds, but we still call it the profiling unit. What part of the country had you served in the FBI? I had worked 10 years out in 
San Francisco's FBI in a profiling capacity, working on missing children's cases, homicides, serial homicides, serial sexual assaults, bombings, arsons. So I had a lot of experience working violent crimes, specifically with law enforcement, trying to help them figure out personality of the offender and the motivation for the crimes. When were you brought onto the Columbine investigation? So I was brought into Columbine, it was upwards of a year afterwards. A lot of the case materials had already been disseminated and released to the public. There was a civil suit that had been filed on behalf of people in the media that wanted to have access to the final basement tapes. The Sheriff's Department had reached out to me and asked if I would be able to review those basement tapes and render an opinion about whether or not I thought those basement tapes should be released. The infamous basement tapes. Five weeks before the Columbine massacre, the perpetrators created a chilling series of videotapes explaining their crimes. They recorded themselves talking about all the people they wanted to destroy. They described their murder fantasies in disturbing and graphic detail, relishing the carnage. The videos were clear evidence of their criminal conspiracy to commit mass murder. They also left superficial apologies to their parents. The killers were playing to the camera. But they provided important information to law enforcement about the relationship dynamics between the two young men. The media was hungry to get their hands on the tapes, so they filed lawsuits. But law enforcement was concerned about the public ever viewing them. Tell me about that experience. Well, it was a pretty intense, I would say, experience. There were a number of these tapes for me to look at, and the Sheriff's Department was very careful about never releasing these tapes. And so when I saw them, it was because they were hand-delivered by the detective in charge of the case. She would hand-deliver them to me back at Quantico, or I remember making maybe two trips out to Columbine where I looked at the tapes, but I did not have access to them. And that was critical because the argument was, if they release them to me to just even look at, then there is the possibility that other people could view them as well. Absolutely. We didn't want that. We wanted the argument to be, whatever way I offered my opinion, we wanted to be based on making sure that those tapes were secured. What struck you the most when you watched the tapes? I have a number of recollections about those tapes. But I I remember being very impressed about the difference between Eric Harris and Dylan, just in terms of their demeanor. Dylan was more joking around as he did the dress rehearsal, and Eric was remarkably different. He came across as impressive. He had a, a sense of humor he seemed to come across to me anyway in a much more mature, thoughtful, pensive way. He was extremely persuasive. Yes. That was my concern. And he was persuasive in a way that would have, in my opinion, influenced other people who had already been thinking about acting out in a violent way to act out in a violent way. His emotional affect came through in a very powerful way. And again, in a way that would have been significantly persuasive to other people watching it if they were inclined to already think about acting out. So what did you decide based on seeing that? My opinion was 
based on a review of the basement tapes, that the tapes should not be made available to anyone because they would serve as blueprints to encourage people already considering a mass shooting to act out in a way that could be very lethal. So I thought that they would be a blueprint. They were so powerful, persuasive, and so compelling. It was primarily Eric to see his, <laughs> his ability to communicate, persuade, cajole, and he spoke in a way that was well beyond his 18 years. And I thought for anybody to see that, they would be motivated by him to follow through. And part of that was actually correct because I mean, I, I believe to this day it was the correct thing to do. I'm more and more reinforced that that was the right decision because the power of these two men posthumously, 20 years posthumously, it is so profound. Part of me was dis was quite dismayed just simply thinking that if we held back the tapes of Columbine, that would prevent another one from happening at least for a while, and then came Virginia Tech. And it wasn't just Virginia Tech. The threats kept coming. Did you find that mass shootings changed with Columbine? What you had pre-Columbine were usually younger people. The crime scenes were not that well organized. You didn't have that many fatalities. Then you had Columbine. Now you've got two offenders that were planning it in a way where they were actually having fun. That took us into a whole new world post-Columbine. Do you think that opened up a new generation of shooters? I do think it opened up a new generation of shooters. We knew we would have more Columbines once that occurred, but to be able to predict the degree to which things change was hardly possible because you had the convergence of so many things that were going on. You had the convergence of social media and you had now people that were growing up within this gun culture. Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris, they didn't grow up with the internet. They didn't really grow up with violent videos. No. We studied their violent video usage. We knew what it was. But that shooting happened when Little House on the Prairie was still a fairly popular television show. Yeah. But now you jump ahead and now these young, particularly young guys are growing up in a time when, when you don't like the way something goes down in your life, you get a gun. You don't like the way yep. something happens, then you think about being a mass shooter. They have grown up in a culture of violence that we have not seen before. And so now when you try to pull away, separate all the parts that now have made it a much more common crime, a much more acceptable way to handle your anger and your disappointment, and you can walk into a Columbine or another venue, maybe a Walmart or someplace else, and you've got your act together, and you're able to stand there and to shoot and to reload a complicated weapon and not demonstrate or manifest or particularly respond to the damage that you're doing to the victims who are crying, who are bleeding to death, but you're coolly and calmly able to respond to what you're doing and you continue to do it without any type of empathy or compassion or remorse for the damage that you're inflicting. That says a lot about your planning. <laughs> that says an awful lot about your personality because people don't just go into a mass shooting, even with a lot of planning, and suddenly become without compassion or remorse. So all of that, your psychology and your thinking about this can pre-exist that event by upwards of a year, if not longer. So when people start using terms like, well, they just snapped, 
Yeah, it wasn't. It's premeditated. This is a premeditated attack instead of a heat of a passion crime. Exactly. And even when you premeditate something, if you and I were to premeditate hurting another human being, at some point, and I assume early on in that premeditation, we would say, "Oh my gosh, what the heck am I thinking about? I could never do that to another human being." And when you stop to think about months, if not longer, years of premeditation, where at any point you could stop and think about your thinking and say, "Oh my gosh, I can't do this," and yet you have these people that go forward and they get the firearms and they practice and they write about it. And when you see a lot of pre-planning in a crime, that tells you that pre-planning is there for a purpose—not just to get it right, but there's also some enjoyment. When I see this behavior, it begins to tell me the kind of offender, mass shooter I'm working with. The phrase I use is mission-oriented, and a mission-oriented mass shooter is someone they engage in the shooting as though it were a military mission.、Mm-hmm. They take more firepower than what they need. They take explosive devices. They take far more ammunition than what they need because it's a mission. Their mission is to kill as many people as possible. And the mission means it puts them in harm's way for a longer period of time, but that's okay because their goal is to kill as many people as possible.、Mm-hmm. And in the end, if they get arrested or if they end up suicide by cop or suicide, that's okay because that mission is what's critical. And Columbine was a mission-oriented shooting. The reason why Columbine is just so disturbing on so many levels is that they did this together. That they premeditated, planned this together, and they both followed through with it, and that's I think rare. So having two involved is risky because one can drop out, or they can actually decide this is dangerous. I have to go to the police. That didn't happen to Columbine. Thirty million women are impacted by weakened or thinning hair. If you're among them, you're not alone, and there's a solution you can trust to deliver results. Thousands of women have taken back control of their hair with Nutrafol, with many users raving that the supplement not only transformed their hair but restored their confidence too. I love Nutrafol because it supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting five root causes of thinning hair: stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, and metabolism. Okay, check, check, check. I'm dealing with all of that. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code Confronting to save fifteen dollars off your first month subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, free shipping on every order. Get fifteen dollars off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L. dot com promo code confronting. Okay, it's time to commit. Twenty twenty four is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Bite, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at home impression kit today for only fourteen ninety five at Bite dot com. Bite clear liners are doctor directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get eighty percent off your impression kit when you use code Wondery at Byte dot com. That's B Y T E 
Byte.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What to me is surprising is that Dylan continued to go through with it. Because I would have thought that Dylan was a was a real smart young guy. Eric was too, very smart young guys. I think at a certain point he got in too deep and wasn't sure how to get out of it. Okay. And I think that was part of it. I don't think that was all of it though. I think the psychology is very complicated here. Eric was very manipulative. I'm not taking any responsibility away from Dylan, but I think Eric was able to groom Dylan and give him feedback and attention and give him things that were important to him just at that time. When you look at loyalty issues, it would have been Dylan to Eric, not Eric to Dylan. What I saw with this case demonstrated to me predatory behavior. And predatory behavior means you're hunting human beings. And that's what it looked like when I saw the video of all of you in the cafeteria. Um, that looked to me to be predatory. And when you're talking about hunting other human beings, that catapults you into a totally different category of offender. It's hard to hear that you saw the tapes in the cafeteria because I was one of those kids hiding under a table. And I, I have dreams about that, like where I'm running in place and I can't get away from Eric. You know, he's he's the one that I just have nightmares about. Why is that? Well, I was told the FBI came to my house and I, I'm sure they went to everyone's home. But I was told that I was on a hit list. I don't know if that was like a myth or if that was something that was real, because that's kind of haunted me for 21 years, that why would someone want to kill me? <laughs> Going from memory, I can't remember if there was a hit list. I know on the basement tapes that I saw, he didn't list anybody by name. He just listed groups of people. Groups of people. So there, he did, you know, were jocks on that list? I believe that he did, yes. Okay. But he ended up being in the cafeteria where Every, every student could be, and then went twice to the library where a lot of the kids were diversified groups. So it was one thing to say, you hate, I hate a certain group of, of people, but then we looked at um, the people that were murdered and the people that were injured, and they were not necessarily reflective of those groups. Okay, that clarifies some, some stuff. I, you know, it was 21 years ago. Do you think that there were people, other people that were possibly going to be involved, but didn't show up that day or didn't? I, I know that there were other people that helped with getting a hold of a weapon. Yeah. That went to the shooting range or outdoors to a range to practice shooting. But no, I don't think that there were other people that were involved. And I think that was by design and more than likely by Eric's design because he really wanted to carry this off. And I know this would sound speculative, but I, I think that he was smart enough to realize that you bring a whole group together, the chances of someone deciding that they're going to change their mind and go to law enforcement or tell a parent grows the more people that you brought in. So I, do, I think it was, I think by design, it just was the two of them. To really understand that there are certain offenders, many offenders, who love what they do. 
They love it. They're having a good time. They enjoy murdering other people. And in some of these mass shootings, post Columbine, people were enjoying killing other human beings. And the general public does not accept that. We don't understand it. More than that, we want to have a softer explanation. And if you understand that explanation, then it requires that we do something about it. And we start looking at where people start to think about being violence and how do people become violence? And what are we gonna do about that pink elephant in the room? And we both know what that pink elephant is. <laughs> Ready access to firearms is the pink elephant. You can never get around it, but there mm -hmm. are things all of us will have to be responsible for. It's got so many facets to it right now. How the heck are these kids being raised that now violence is the answer to everything? And, and we are being born into a much more violent cultural violence when you want to do something that you think you have the right to do because you've been wrong. You know, those are parenting techniques, those, that's social messaging, that's, how do you change that? People wanted to blame the murders on goth kids and the trench coat mafia at Columbine. They wore black trench coats, combat boots, and some wore Nazi crosses. They hated jocks, loved the internet, and were fascinated by World War II. They were known as the trench coat mafia. The question is, why didn't anyone know they turned so violent? The clues were here in Littleton long before the deadly violence. The yearbook pictures with handwritten captions about insanity. This alleged trench coat mafia even had a so-called hit list, mentioning jocks and one substitute teacher as potential targets. The perpetrators did wear trench coats, and there was a group called the Trench Coat Mafia. A page in the Columbine yearbook showed the Trench Coat Mafia. It looked like a club. Neither of the shooters are in the photo. Here's what one member of the Trench Coat Mafia said. Eric and Dylan were not not at all a part of the things that we did as a group. They didn't hang out with us. They weren't trench coat mafia at all. The trench coat mafia was like we were we were video game nerds. We weren't we like sit around the table and play Dungeons and Dragons, which is just about <laughs> the least dangerous thing you could do. Interestingly enough, post Columbine, I would get calls from law enforcement all over the world asking about this. Well, we have two kids in our school and they're wearing trench coats and they're also putting purple dye in their hair and they're listening to really strange music and we think that they're gonna be the next shooter. I would kind of have to put the phone down for a little bit so they wouldn't hear me and say, are you kidding me? Those yeah. are not predictors of a mass shooter. And yet we went for years in, in this country and then outside the country where we were beginning to think that if a young kid put on a trench coat, they were going to commit that act. There was such a lack of understanding about what constitutes or makes up or contributes to a mass shooting. It was very frustrating. And still people live with these misconceptions. Why does it seem boys' brains in particular, males, that aren't developed until they're in their like 26 years old or whatnot. Do you find that perpetrators are, you know, between the ages of like 16 and, and early 20s that like white males? Well, actually a review of all the shootings that have occurred that I'm familiar with found the mass shooters to be older in their 30s. However, there is something about 
this is a male phenomenon we have females but we don't have that many and you're right actually it's both the male and female brain doesn't fully form until that person is in their mid 20s to late 20s and interestingly enough i think this is important their personalities are not hardwired mm-hmm. until they're about that age as well so there's always an issue about could we have identified that young person sooner and then push them into their 30s somehow i mean not literally but sometimes move yeah. them into their 30s with all sorts of wrap around services and they would have gotten over this need to become a mass shooter we don't know that because you can't go back in time but there is something about developmental issues that you have to think about as as well in in some of these cases it was 21 years ago now and it's gotten so much worse we're not supplementing these forms of of learning development with courses on the three things that are really important it's compassion it's empathy and it's altruism we need to put those back into the classroom at a very early age and we're not doing that so educators are willing to do it but classes are filled with you have to do this so that kids can go to college by the time they graduate but we have to teach people the importance of those three three things in particular because the way we communicate with one another now and have been for the last 20 years has a remarkable absence of those traits. I am learning so much and you've cleared up a lot of things for me today and I really appreciate it. So these tapes, she's seen what no one else has seen. Correct. And she's decided that no one else should see them. Are you glad? Yes, especially now we're looking at almost 22 years later after Columbine it's prevalent. I mean, we have mass shootings all the time and and this is something that isn't going away. I think if we were to release these tapes, it would be I mean horrible, horrific for society. The way it sounds like Eric and Dylan were in these tapes, their lack of empathy, their lack of remorse. It would be like they said a blueprint for mass shooters to commit these crimes. Yeah. But you can imagine that every journalist in the world wants to see this. I mean, people want to see this for the news value, but they shouldn't see it because of what it could inspire. There's nothing good that could come out of releasing these tapes. So what more do you know about these tapes and do you want to see them? I don't want to see the, I've read their journals. I've seen the sick, twisted thoughts in each of them. I saw what Mary Ellen O'Toole is explaining, like the lack of remorse. You got to wonder, though, what it means that somebody enjoys the planning, that they savor it, that they enjoy the idea of killing people. I don't know. Do they connect? Do they think other people are human beings or do they think it's all some kind of a game? Eric truly enjoyed the planning process of this is what it seemed Oh, can we get the, to the pink elephant in the room? I'm sorry, not a pink one, a blue elephant. This is a male-dominated issue. This is something that young males are doing. They are lacking in empathy and lacking in coping skills. Do you think this was something somebody could have figured out beforehand? That, that's a really hard question. I think there were things missed by the parents. I think there were things missed by law enforcement. 
And also, you know, it sounds like Eric kind of pulled the wool over his psychiatrist's eyes. When you're a psychopath, you can do that. Narcissist, manipulative. Yeah, yeah. It's scary to think that they planned this for so long. And it's sickening that both of them committed the act together. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. One user just posted her review. My therapist has been a beacon of hope. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You know, sometimes I don't get a minute to myself until 10 at night. And if you're a parent, you know what I mean. And BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash confronting. That's better H-E-L-P and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. There's a special offer for Confronting Columbine listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash confronting. Dave Cullen is the author of the book, Columbine. Dave was a young journalist living in Denver when he saw the story break on local news and headed straight for Littleton. He spent the next 10 years researching and writing the text that is considered the most detailed and accurate depiction of the events surrounding the massacre. Amy sat down with Dave to help dispel the endless pervasive inaccuracies that still won't be put to rest. There's so many myths of Columbine, from the trench coat mafia to the jocks being targeted. I have a hard time with the trench coat mafia because there was a trench coat mafia at Columbine. But I don't know that the offenders were a part of the trench coat mafia. No. I think they just like to wear trench coats. So one of the things we know about Columbine, that everybody knows about Columbine, is that two loner outcasts, goths from the trench coat mafia, went into their school that morning to avenge the trench coat mafia being bullied for years and targeted the jocks to kill them as a revenge, right? That's what everybody knows. And every single thing I just said is wrong. Everything except like the thes and the ands in that sentence are wrong because they all fit together that the pieces of this explanation that explains Columbine. Mm -hmm. Most of the myths had either a kernel of truth or some connection to the truth. It takes something real to gain currency. But there was a thing called the Trench Coat Mafia. So even though I think most people in your school weren't even aware of that, by the afternoon, within an hour, so many people were talking about that you all quickly discovered it. Either you already knew or you learned about it. It was this feedback loop. Well, you were getting that from us. Right the media heard the killers were in trench coats or saw the trench coats and put two and two together oh trench coat mafia well that was a reasonable conclusion but happened to be wrong but once that got going and everybody heard both things and put it together it made sense then it's on tv so we're essentially telling you guys through the tv and then you're thinking like oh okay so they're in the trench coat mafia like oh that's crazy 
So these things just went like wildfire. And so then when we interview you, then you tell us. Yeah. And it's just this big loop based on this tiny misunderstanding at the beginning of these two kind of coincidences. Out in Clement Park, I kept asking, you know, everybody I talked to about the killers and almost everybody was out there, except most of the killers' close friends. Because of course, if one of your close friends notoriously they killed a bunch of people, you're probably gonna be in your house like hiding from it all, right? You're suddenly a pariah. And that's one of the things we didn't realize later either. Anybody who actually knew them said like, no, they weren't actually in the trench coat mafia. Some people could tell me the names of the people in the trench coat mafia yeah. and it didn't include them. So we got that wrong. And that's one of the things I really came to understand about the myths is like myths that explain the inexplicable, right? And the, yeah. and the horrible and the disastrous that give you well, you know, the answer. Everyone wants the answer. Like, why did Columbine happen? Yeah, even if it's wrong, <laughs> it's an answer. <laughs> it's an answer. And Columbine w was like any high school. We had bullying, of we course. had cliques, we had the potheads, the jocks. I was a jock. So I have a question. Sure. Did you ever hear of a hit list? Yeah, so here's our interesting thing. So there's kind of various hit lists that Eric kept. Um, but then Kate Batten told me too, is like, he did have certain lists, but then he also, in his yearbook, went through and put axes over people. Kate Batten was the well-respected lead investigator on the Columbine case for Jefferson County. And so she's like, if you take all the people he said something about, it's like half the school. But all the people he put on actual lists, of hit lists in different forms, none of those people actually ended up getting killed. I was told I was on that list. Oh, wow. So the FBI came to my house and told me that I was on, actually a couple of my girlfriends and I were on the list. Did you know them or one of them or both? No, I, I had classes with both of them. Both of the boys were in my economics class my senior year. Oh, wow. I wanna know if I was on this list. I don't know why I have to know this, but it's just kind of like one of those things after 21 years, I'm just like, why was I on a list and was the list real? Yeah, well that you can probably kind of halfway let go. Kate, I talked to several times and she said she would refer to them actually as shit lists. He would write, I really love to kill her, whatever. So sometimes it was more overt and sometimes it was less overt or he would just scribble over the person's face. Okay, well, so does that mean, you know, he wants to kill her or not? So there were degrees of it. But so I think the FBI is here. I mean, here's the problem. Like the FBI has a job to do. And like, I mean, I'm really torn about them telling you this because obviously like 21 years ago, you're still living that. I have a feeling based on what Kate told me, it wasn't really a hit list. It was just sort of like yeah. more informal, hate her, whatever. Statistically, it's much more likely that you were just lumped in with a lot of people and you weren't on the shorter list. Gotcha. It's just something that haunts me for a long time. Yeah, that's why she was just like, uh, hitless, shitless. Chances are very high that, yeah, there was a much smaller number of people where he was definitely talking about. Yeah, that he was going to target that day. It wasn't even that. It was more like he'd said, I really love to kill or whatever. So that was more like a fantasy of like, it was more like I'd really love to. The plan was the bombs to go off and kill five or 600 people in the cafeteria their positions in the parking lot triangulating the main exits as you all ran out of the cafeteria to mow you down. So like, 
they would have no idea. It was just like open yeah. fire in a crowd. It was more like a wish list kind of, oh, I'd love to kind of, than a target of people they were actually planning to do. Because the plan was not to like go search and find anyone at all. No. It was just body count and you know aggrandizing a bombing it was supposed to be a bombing it was a bombing that would also involve shooting as sort of a secondary act it's just crazy if all of this is known and it's been studied debunked and you've spent 10 years on it why won't they just stop you wouldn't believe the amount of people trying to pretend to be the killers two decades later oh my god it's really clear why certain myths have staying power and it's because they explain something. And the very first really huge myth, the whole thing I said very early about loners and outcasts and jocks and goths and bullied people who were then targeting people. Okay, so you're a miserable person who's picked on and you're at the bottom of the ladder and all these reasons that you might wanna seek revenge on jocks who are in power and so you did, so you targeted that. It's so like, okay, all that makes sense. That's an explanation. So we have an answer to the burning question of why. Why wouldn't that stick with us? Once you have the key to this whole thing, you think you have the key. It happens to be the wrong freaking key, but you've got it. America has that answer. We weren't willing to let go of it. What do you think were the most damaging myths? I would put the gothsmiths at the top of the list because there are millions and we're millions of golf kids in America who essentially got blamed. Goth kids were the kids that liked to dress and style themselves in a fashion that followed certain bands in the late 1970s and 80s. The look was punk with a darker edge, sometimes military-like. Think long coats, combat boots, safety pins, spiked jewelry, and bleached hair. I heard from so many goth kids. You know, I was a goth kid and after Columbine happened, we were pariahs. Yep. And the problem is they already kind of were. Usually you, know, you become a goth kid because you already kind of don't fit in. And like, it's a way of rebelling. Like, oh, you think I'm a freak now? Like, wait till I paint my face white. <laughs> I'll show you. Oh, I'll really freak you out. I mean, right? I mean, that's sort of like the essence of what it is. Yeah. Almost by definition, for the most part, you know, like you're already struggling to fit in and not being like the other kids. And then suddenly like, oh, you're connected with murderers. And like, oh, every big goth kid is. And I remember ABC 2020, it was two nights after Columbine, had this whole special report. And it was basically like, goth kids might be in your school, might be in your family. These evil kids who are la la la. It's just horrifying, right? Yeah, what do you do as a parent and your kid is a goth kid? They probably freak the hell out. Totally. You get suspended or kicked out or like sent home. Yeah. These kids are already struggling. Mm -hmm. Or kids who are like loners or outcasts. Somebody literally is an outcast. Maybe that's what you want to help. Society was just looking for someone to blame. They're easy targets, right? Now I, you know, see all these kids online in these groups who idolize the killers. And then we see in the writings and postings of actual killers, almost all of whom who look back to the Columbine killers as kind of the role models, and I hate to say this, but the founding fathers of their movement. When I say that, I don't know which is more appalling, that they're founding fathers or that it's like a movement to them, right? Ugh. But the whole reason that these kids look up to Eric and Dylan is because they see Eric and Dylan as like these avenging angels. 
So these killers are sometimes wannabe killers or people who are contemplating killing or so forth are people who very often are like the imaginary version of Erica Dillon, who mm -hmm. are the outcasts and loners and see themselves as at the bottom rung of the totem pole, picked on and, you know, shit upon by everyone and kicked around. And if only somebody stood up for them. And in this telling of it, in this narrative, that's what Eric and Dilla did. That they'd been relentlessly bullied by these jocks and they stood up for like the little people and the outcasts everywhere. Eric and Dylan weren't trying to do that. And I think of them as like sort of like social Robin Hoods. Robin Hood was taking from the rich and giving to the poor, which has tremendous resonance. In the same way, these people are saying Eric, the social haves and have nots. All these other have nots. Eric and Dylan knocked down the social haves, the people at the top. I'm a nobody, Eric and Dylan were nobodies. It's created the storyline for other future killers, which is this completely false narrative, but it has such power for people who feel like they don't have any other way to turn or any other way out. Desperate people, desperate in high school, this has power to them of a story of supposedly people who were supposedly like them who did something about that. It's an explanation which happens to be completely wrong, but serves a need and answers their prayers. I really support not naming the killers, ever. No notoriety, just focusing on the victims and survivors of mass murders and not glorifying the perpetrators. You covered the Parkland mass shootings and wrote another book. How was this different? It's kids who really are taking control and getting some of the power back. You feel like, oh, these killers took all this from you. And like in the history of mass shootings or mass murder, David Hogg is the first survivor ever to be more famous than the person shooting at them. And three days later, Emma Gonzalez became the second person and much more famous than David. When I worked with some of the Parkland students in Denver, I saw like a lot of my peers from Columbine with their children. And it was a really powerful movement. And it really got me on my feet and got me thinking about gun reform, thinking about the reasons why these incidences keep happening. It kind of sparked something new in me. And I had one kid from Parkland come up to me and he asked, he says, Miss Amy, how come uh, in 1999, like how come you didn't fight? God. I was kind of offended at first. I was like, listen here, I'm old for one, oh but I didn't know to fight because mass shootings weren't a thing. Right. For you guys, it was like Martians attacked or something, right? It was just it, like- It really was. completely out of like, what? There really are monsters under your bed. You were just dealing with the shock. These kids grew up expecting a really horrific school shooting. Talk to me about your experience writing the book. I know it took years, and that had to have been really hard on you. I had a feeling, I was pretty sure that the Dave Sanders bleeding to death thing was gonna be the hardest thing I would ever write, and it was. Dave's stands alone, kind of like a 10 at the, fucking me up. I could only work for so long before crying so hard, and I was not seeing the screen, writing through the tears literally where I couldn't see the screen, every day till I just couldn't take it any longer. But each day I would take kind of a different person's point of view in the room, and gradually I figured out that what I was doing was not writing what it's like to bleed to death for three hours, 
but what it's like to witness somebody bleeding to death for three hours. Eagle Scouts, who would yes. literally physically try to save him, like other students. What does it feel like to be the kid working on him? How does it feel to be the parent or the adult in the room who feels almost emasculated because like, I should be doing something, but I don't know how. And that is kind of what the book is about. It's not so much about the 13 people who died. It's the 2,000 people, brothers and sisters and parents and friends and teachers and cousins and neighbors and like all the people who went through it with those 13 people. The community, all of you, sort of like an emotional bomb blowing off, right, in your mm -hmm. world. So I tried to get all those different perspectives of what it was like, but that was just devastating because each one of them was like horrific. I cried so hard at that chapter. Yeah. And I knew what happened in that room that day, but you gave me just a different perspective on what truly went down in that room. And the thing that, that like really got me was when the SWAT team came in and got those kids out of that room and they left Coach Sanders there. That makes me like... What does it make you angry? What is it? What is, what does it it make makes you? me angry because he shouldn't have bled to death. Would you say that you had secondary PTSD? Yeah, yeah, totally did, yeah. Yeah. Seven years out, so it was the combination of the Dave Sanders chapter, and then a few weeks later, I wrote the one on Dylan's funeral. That was the second hardest to write. In a weird way, I think because, particularly, I guess, Dylan's brother, Byron, can you imagine your only sibling, and like, oh, he's a mass murderer. What do you do with that? And the parents. Who in the world knows what they're going through? And who can they talk to? No, everyone hated them. Exactly. So Klebold didn't kill anybody. She was taken by surprise too. And I guess I put myself in their shoes. In the book, you quoted their minister. Can you tell me what he said? I think Thomas too are the two most lonely people in the world. I hadn't thought of that. Like, of course, of, of all the things I could be feeling is they're completely alone. And maybe that was part of it too, that it was a punch in the gut, like, oh, it took me seven years, you know, to figure out that Sue Klebold's a human being too. And like, this was devastating for her. That's what I thought would do me in. But no, the part that did me in was you guys. Yeah. It was like knowing the people like you and I stayed in touch. And I swear to God, like the first week, especially all those kids that I talked to, you guys were like radioactive. Your grief and just pain emanating from you that I was just absorbing. And I feel like I still have that. Yeah. I can't even watch any stories of, and you know, when the latest thing happens. I can't either. I just go to the dark place and had no idea that it was dangerous to me or that it would get inside me and it would never come out. On the next episode of Confronting Columbine. I had known Dylan my whole life. I had known him since I was six years old. It's always been a creepy thing for me to know that those were the last words I exchanged with him and he alluded to the fact that he was about to do something absolutely terrible. It haunts me that there was a plan that whole time. For more information on The Rebels Project or to donate, please go to therebelsproject.org and see me there. Want to know more about the Confronting Podcast? Please follow us at Confronting Pod on Twitter, 
Instagram, and Facebook for photos, additional content, and discussions about the podcast. We are all confronting something, and I look forward to continuing the discussion from our episodes over social media with all of you. If you enjoyed this one, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for going on this journey with me. Confronting Columbine was produced and hosted by me, Amy Over. Executive produced by Nancy Glass, Andrea Gunning, Ben Fetterman, and Carrie Hartman. Produced by Julie Clark. Associate producer, Trey Morgan. Editing by senior audio editor, Matt Dovecchio. Editor, Drew Wallace and Dean Welsh. With production assistance from Megan Paisley and Brianna Fars. Other members of the production team include Kristen Melcuri, Pete Ward, and Natalie Thomas. Music and original composition by Mybe Music. Confronting Columbine was produced by Glass Entertainment Group, Glass Podcast in partnership with Wondery. The wait is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Ding! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything. You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that. New cases. She wanted to fight me. Leave her alone. Okay, so, um... Not, this is not a so. This is a period. Classic Judy. Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. The Emmy Award-winning series returns. How did I know that? I have a crystal ball in my head. It's an all-new season. It's streaming. You can say anything. <laughs> Judy Justice. Only on Freebie.